You know, I think, I think as long as uh, governments have been around, we have struggled with how to relate to them. Uh, I think a recent Gallup poll was that 9% of Americans surveyed find great confidence in their government. Just 9% find great confidence in their government. How do we relate to the government? I mean, I mean how does the Christian relate to government. I mean, we're a child of God, and yet we're a citizen of this country. So how do they relate to one another? Jesus is going to give a, a wonderful new paradigm on how we are to relate to the government. But, it, but it's going to come in the context of, of this attack, you know, that the religious leaders are going to attack Jesus, beginning this um, section of three debates that we're going to see over the next three weeks. He's going to attack, they're going to attack Jesus. Jesus is going to respond to them and their attack. And then the people are going to respond or marvel. It's like a boxing match over the next three weeks. The religious leaders come in, Jesus responds, and then the people respond to that. So I'm just going to follow the structure of the text as I explain this to you. So let's read, if you will, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. This is the first of these debates that we're going to see. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Okay, so you know where we are in this story. Jesus has entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He's proclaimed himself to be king. He's gone into the temple, which is his royal right. He's cleansed the temple. He's preached the gospel, and people have come to faith. Others have not. Others have rejected him. And then Jesus, of course, goes into the string of parables that we just studied. Three parables, and each one was indicting the Jewish leadership for their failure to be fruitful. But not only does he indict them, he judges them, and he says the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to another people. Here they thought Jesus, the Messiah, would come in and throw Rome out. They, in fact, are throwing the Jewish leadership, and by extension, the nation of Israel out. Well, this is Jesus doing this publicly. I mean, the religious leaders can't stand for that. They, they, they were, you know, they're verbally undressed, as it were, before a public forum. So that's why it says, <clears throat> they went out and plotted how to entangle him in his words. <clears throat> they're thinking, how are we going to trap this guy? Hey, their intention is very clear. Over the next three weeks, you're going to see this. They want to destroy Jesus. They don't care who does it. It can be, it can be the crowds. It can be the government. It can be the, they don't care. They want to destroy him. That's their intention. 
Their stated intention is to entrap him, to destroy him. Now, the two groups you notice, the Pharisees you're familiar with, the Herodians you might not be. The Pharisees, as you remember, are just the religious teachers. They're the religious people. They're ritual. I mean, they, they practice an amazing amount of ritual purity. They studied the law. They taught the law. They hated Rome. They hated Roman taxes. They wanted a theocracy where God ruled through them to the people. Now, the Herodians were a different group. The Herodians, as you can probably pick up, they are followers of Herod. They're supporters of Herod. And Herod, by extent, he's a puppet of Rome. So the Herodians are actually in support of Rome. These are very two strange friends to come together. They are very opposite from one another, but it supports the old adage, which is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And you saw this in World War II with the Allies and Stalin. You, saw it, you see it now today with Israel and Saudi Arabia becoming friendly over Iran. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, so what brings these two together to use deceit to entangle a man who they say speaks the truth? It's amazing how wicked we can be. Well, how are they going to set the hook? How are they going to trap them? Well, if, you, if you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, you know that people use lures, and lures are those, they're often shiny and they spin fast, and they portray something that they're not, so that the fish will think it's bait and be caught. Well, how did they do it? Well, the Pharisees couldn't just go up to Jesus. They were a known bunch. Jesus would have had his defenses up. And so who do they send? You notice he, he, they send these young disciples. Luke's gospel says they were spies. They're young, they're inexperienced, they're less seasoned. And maybe they could get in, maybe with Jesus' guard down. And they come with flattery. Do you notice that? You know, flattery is that, that idea of just kind of using false praise with ill intent. They come with flattery and they say, we know that you speak the truth. We know you teach the way of salvation truthfully. We know that you don't care about any man's opinion. In other words, you're impartial. They're coming in trying to soften up the target so that they can set the hook. Now, the hook is the question. The question, they want Jesus to hang himself on his own words. They want him to bring conviction to himself. So they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, listen, taxes have always created a problem in culture. I mean, taxes and revolts, America, do we understand that? Go back a few hundred years. Yes, taxes and revolutions come together often around taxes. And this was, no, this was not different then. You know, th this idea of paying taxes to Caesar, the tax. Now, the Romans had all kinds of taxes, agricultural taxes, transfer taxes. This was a poll tax. This was, though, especially objectionable to the Jews. Because if any Jew, it, it was a tax, really, it was a head tax. If you had a head, you got taxed. And if you were from 14 to 65, male or female, you paid a tax to the Roman government. And, and the reason it was so objectionable is because it really, it really set in place that they were subjugated to Rome. Even my head is taxed. In fact, when this tax was instituted in 6 AD, there was a revolt. And, and, and this tax would be part of the revolt that would come in 66 AD the one that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So this was a hated tax. 
It was hated because it, it represented everything. Here, God had taken Israel from Egypt and was going to put them in their own land, and now Rome is there ruling them, and they're paying taxes to Rome. So you can see the political ramifications were just wicked. But there's more than that. There were religious reasons they hated this tax. Why? Because the tax itself was a denarius. It was one day's wage. It wasn't a lot of money. But it had an inscription on it and an image on it. It had the image of Tiberius Caesar. Of course, that is the violation of the second commandment. If you're a pious Jew, you would look at no graven images, and yet on this coin was a picture of the emperor. On the other side of the coin stated that he was divine emperor. He was the divine leader. And so that breaks the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before you. And so it was a hated tax. Okay, so the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It was just meant to trap. It was just meant to alienate Jesus from either the people or the, or the uh, government, right? So if Jesus said, yeah, I think we ought to pay the taxes. Yes, pay the taxes. Well, anybody of a religious sort, would be offended by that. We thought you were a prophet. We thought you were coming here to bring the law of God to bear. We thought you were here as God's spokesman. And you're telling us to pay taxes to a foreign government in your designed land? You know, that would alienate them with the people. Jesus would lose popularity. They would move away. And then the leaders could pounce on him. Because remember last week, they wanted to destroy him, but they were afraid of the people. But if they could turn the people against him, then they would have their way with him. But if Jesus said, no, it's not lawful to pay the taxes, well, then immediately these Pharisees would run right to Rome and say, we've got an insurrectionist on our hands. We have a seditious personality who's trying to revolt against Rome. So either he's a revolutionary against Rome or he's a collaborator with Rome. So either way, he's alienated. So what's Jesus going to It's kind of like tails I win, heads you lose. That's the kind of arrangement that he has here. What's he going to do? <clears throat> How's he going to get out of this? Well, before I give you the answer, and, and you're kind of marveling at his wit, I want to remind you, there's something profound going on in terms of biblical history. There's a profound teaching here about how we relate to the government. But first, before he gives the answer, he exposes their hearts. Do you see what Jesus does? He knows us. He knows these people. And he says, why do you put me to the test? As if you think you can fool me? The Messiah from God? No limit to power, no limit to glory? He says, you hypocrites. He exposes their hearts for why they're doing what they're doing. And really, in a way, this will be an act of mercy. Now, in their malice and hypocrisy, he doesn't go silent. He doesn't judge them in their silence, but he actually answers them. And, and he says this, he says, uh, show me a coin. Now, there's a subtle indictment here because he had no coin and they had one. So if it was so blasphemous, why are you carrying a coin? So, so he asks for a coin, they give him a coin, and they say, whose inscription is on this? Whose image is on this? Of course, they, that now the hook just got set in their own mouth. They say, well, Caesar's. Remember how Jesus' questions always work towards self-condemnation? Not, not to break us. Well, to break us so that he can build us. Of course, they say Caesar's. And then he comes out with these immortal words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. Now, you could have heard a pin drop there. I mean, this was not just ingenious. This was radical. 
for him to say in the temple precincts, holding a coin that has an image of a divine emperor, and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, render to God the things that are God's. Now, what's amazing about this is he doesn't say it's lawful. Implicitly, he does, but what he says is he uses a different word. He says, render to Caesar. In other words, render is you owe a debt to Caesar. You have a debt. You have an obligation that you have to pay. Now, how could this be? What Jesus is doing, he's setting a new chapter in biblical history. In other words, God is making Israel as an ethnic people through which God would declare his kingdom, he's making them obsolete. He is moving beyond nationality and people groups and ethnicities through which to work. And he's showing that Christ's kingdom transcends them all. That Christ's kingdom is no longer limited to a specific people group or a specific nation. But now it's, it's comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, tongue, tribe nation, and people. That, that's what, this is revolutionary. No longer is Israel the people of God that he is going to work through to declare his glory and to draw people into his kingdom. Jesus is now the king of a new kingdom. And you know this because it was prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 9 when it says that that, um, the government will rest upon his shoulders. The government will rest upon Christ. I mean, this is incredible. So, So Jesus in one fell swoop is saying you have an obligation to human government and you have an obligation to God. They both are operational. They're both compatible. They're not contradictory. Now, before I explain this render to Caesar and render to God, let me just stop for a minute. Let's just put a full stop here. And I want you to see something about these leaders. Religion doesn't save. They were men and women who followed God. They believed in God. They were moral. They, were rit- they practiced all the rituals. And do you see the brokenness even wickedness, even maliciousness of their own souls. I mean, when you take religion and you wrap it up with an unregenerate heart, it's a wicked thing. And all of us at one point were unregenerate. Everyone is born apart from God. Religion cannot save. That's why the scripture says ye must be born again. You have to be given new life by God. Now, Jesus exposes their heart, not in a condemning way, but to reveal to them that they need him, that we need Christ, we need to be delivered. So he says, you hypocrites. Now, Jesus knows all things. Jesus knows that these conflicts with these Pharisees are going to end him on the cross. He knows that. But he's going to the cross to save us. Do you see, he knows our brokenness. He knows our unregenerateness. Please don't hold these Pharisees as people with black hats. They would be seen as the white hats. They would be seen as the good ones. If they aren't getting in, no one has a shot. And so Jesus is saying to them and to us, apart from Christ going to the cross to save, there's no hope. Jesus knows he has to die. Jesus wasn't put to death. He gave himself unto death that he might give us new life. I mean, Christian, if, if, you're, if you're a Christian that follows Jesus, I mean, we just stop and we thank him. We thank him for 
for saving us. If you're not a Christian, we need to think about this. Are you trusting in religion? Are you trusting in your knowledge of God? Are you trusting in coming to church? Are you trusting in the things that you're doing? Because here we see religion doesn't save. They're a perfect picture of that. Okay, let, let me just move on now to the... So, so that's kind of the attack. Now, how, how do we understand this relationship between the Christian and the government? As we understand, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. Well, a couple of things. Let's just start with Caesar. Render to Caesar, pay back. Jesus is, number one, here's what Jesus is saying. You, you must recognize the legitimacy of government. You have to recognize the legitimacy of government. The, the, the government is not the enemy of God. The government is actually a servant of God. That God has chosen to ordain the government both to reflect <clears throat> his authority, but also accomplish his purposes. Listen, God has established government throughout creation. Look back, even before sin entered the world, he established a man and a woman to rule and subdue. He's establishing a government. Uh, look, at, look at marriage with the husband and the wife. The husband is the head of the wife. Look at the relationship within the home. You have parents, you have children. Look at the, the nature of the church. You have elders and deacons and, and members. <clears throat> Look at the, the government of cities and states. You have elected officials and you have citizens. Look at the governance of creation. You have the sun with the gravitational pull keeping all the planets around. There's a governance even in creation. God has established a government for his purposes. Now, what's remarkable about this passage is it teaches us that his authority, his government, the legitimacy of government, is even when the government is not walking in accordance with the ways of God. Do you see that? I mean, even though a government may stray from the plans and purposes of God as it's, as it's written out in Scripture, he still ordains their authority. We see Jesus in John nineteen eleven say to Herod, who was going to, who's going to bring about an execution, you would have no authority over me unless it was granted to you from above. Jesus is affirming the authority of Herod over his life as given to him by God. Or Daniel 4.17, listen to these words, God in speaking, saying, to the end, in other words, so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. God sets the kingdoms of men. And he even appoints lowly men, men who we, we wouldn't even expect to be ruling. He appoints them over those kingdoms. It's God's doing. So the first thing we see is, folks, we always have to affirm, validate, agree with the legitimacy of governments, even when they're running contrary to God's express purpose as we understand it in his word. Okay, second thing, not just, not just recognizing the legitimacy, but we have to submit to the authority. In, in this case, we're submitting to the authority in, in the sense of taxes, right? He's charging taxes. Now, we don't agree with paying for taxes when the government's only spending it in the direction that we would have them spend it. We pay taxes to the government not because they're doing it right, but because they're from God. Remember, when Jesus held up that denarius, the taxes that Rome would charge, that Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that was paying for Roman government officials, 
It was paying for the building of temples and shrines to false gods. The goddess Diana had a temple built in Ephesus with that poll tax. But not just that, it would pay the soldiers that would drive the nails into Christ as he's hanging on the tree. And he affirms to pay those taxes. Even Paul himself in Romans 13 says this. He says, everyone must submit himself to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Here Paul's in imprisonment affirming the legitimacy of the Roman government. And we're going to see why you can do this in a minute. But first we want to recognize the legitimacy. We want to submit to the authority. Now, there is a disclaimer I'd like to put in here. If the government were to command uh, a citizen to violate a clear teaching of Scripture, then there is a place for passive civil disobedience. Not taking up arms, but passively disobeying and not obeying the command. We see this, of course, with Pharaoh when he commanded the Hebrew midwives back in the book of Exodus to put to death any male Jew born. They wouldn't do it, and they're commended in the book of Hebrews. Or you see it with Peter and the apostles when they were brought in and beaten by the religious leadership and said, don't preach about Jesus anymore. Now, they weren't, they weren't hiding what they were going to do. We can't obey men. We'll obey God. And they bore the consequences of that, didn't they? But they didn't obey. So, so we see this, recognize the legitimacy, submit to the authority, and then, and then thirdly, exercise your responsibility. Now, we, as Americans, will often talk about how our rights are being infringed by a growing government. Do you concern yourself as much with the responsibilities that you're called to exercise or the righteousness that you're called to display? We're protective of our rights. Are we responsible, though? One way of being responsible to the government would be to be invested in it or to participate in it, whether it's through governmental positions or fire or police or other governmental agencies, that you would use your gifts and your talents in the government, that you would be salt and light, that you would seek to bring about a corrective influence to the government. That's one way. Another way is to vote. You know, vote is a responsibility of the Christian. Do you realize that only 33% of evangelical Christians voted the election? And the lowest group was 18 to 24. I mean, that's a... 100% of Christians should vote. I think based upon this passage, I could say clearly, 100% of us should vote. That's a responsibility that we have to the government. Complain about the government, we don't vote, seems like a contradiction to me. But not just that, honoring the government. I mean, to honor, to honor the president, to honor the elected officials, to honor those people who are serving us. I mean, in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 17, it says, honor the emperor. In Romans chapter 13, 7, it says, pay respect to those whom it's due and pay honor to those whom it's due. Now, I just want to, I really want to bring a word of hopefully gentle correction to us. You know, we have become in the last 20, 30 years, I think, extremely polarizing in our discussion over political issues. Uh, Polarizing, even demonizing of people. I mean, there is clearly a place for debate over policy and procedures. Absolutely, I think I think that's appropriate and right. But when we move with harsh rhetoric 
this rancor, this, this anger and bitterness. And then when it takes to the airwaves through social mediums like Facebook, it's a disaster. I had a friend back from Maryland who, uh, of a conservative nature, very conservative nature, and he would just pour it out on Facebook and use terms and expressions that would just exacerbate an already difficult discussion and, and cause people to take sides that they might not take if they weren't so reacting to his words. So may I caution us to speak with gentleness and kindness? State your position. State it clearly. State it gently. You know, the, the anger and the rhetoric doesn't advance any of the truth that you're trying to say. It tends to just shut down the ears of those you're seeking to persuade. So, so that's a responsibility we have to honor, to honor those in authority because God has established them. They will bear a responsibility before God for how they handle that. I would also say be thankful, that we would be thankful for our government, grateful that God has established a government to care for our good. I mean, with public safety, with justice in courts. I mean, they don't do it perfectly, no doubt about it. Uh, but they're making life passable and peaceable for us. We ought to be very, very thankful, regardless of the administration, thankful for the government that he has given to this country. I mean, if you're not thankful, let me encourage you to take a trip to a third world country and stay three weeks there. I, I better yet, go get arrested there. If, if you have a problem and you can't be thankful, go get arrested in a third world country. And tell me that you don't like America a little bit better. You know, when we were in Austria working with refugees, you never had to convince these folks coming out of communistic countries, atheistic governments, that things were better on the Western side. So we would go in and do mission work across the Iron Curtain. And you'd go through the border, military hardware, tanks, man. You'd go through there. And you'd go in, at the time it was Czechoslovakia, it was still combined at the time, and Hungary, and I'll tell you, it was dark, roads were busted up, electricity was inconsistent, the great car of Russia, the Trabant, was an absolute piece of junk, just pouring out, you couldn't get gas, you had to go to the governmental bureau to get coupons to then go buy gas, and, and the buildings were dilapidated, it was all gray, 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 that's all, everything was the same. It was no signage. There was no authority around except military authority. And then you'd come back and you'd cross into Austria. I remember getting out of the car and thinking, wow, I got on the ground and kissed it. I mean, there were colors, there were flowers, there were markers on the road, the lights worked, there was signage. It was incredible to go from that. It was like a wool blanket was taken off me. So, I mean, if you have trouble being thankful... I thank the DOT. We love a joke about the DOT. But yeah, and I have this hole on 540, and I hit it every time you think, you've been going there for 17 years, and they fixed it. I'm very thankful for that. And let's thank the people in government that are serving us. And, and those who are serving us in government, you have a responsibility. You have, you're an extension and an example of God's authority. The way you do your work is really before God. So let's be thankful. And then, and then the last responsibility I'd encourage you to is, is just to pray. We're not just praying for prosperity. We're praying for their competence. We want them to not be wasteful. We want them to be effective. We're praying for their compassion, that they would exercise their responsibilities with gentleness and with fairness. 
We're praying for their contriteness. We're praying that they would understand their jobs have been delegated to them by God, and they will have a responsibility before God over how they exercise their position. And we also want to pray for their conversion. We want to pray that they would know God, that they would, they would realize that they actually have been put here by God and repent before him. This is what Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy. Says, I urge you, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. First thing, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God. Do you hear that? You want to know what pleases God? First of all, make intercession for the king, for the president. It's really important. Now, think about this for a minute. If you're not a Christian here and you're thinking about Christianity, you're considering it, isn't it the kindness of God that he would give government? It's common grace that God would establish authority in his creation. If you want to consider living under anarchy, Somalia, Sudan, large swaths of Syria, where there's no law, there's no public order, there's no public health, there's no clean water, the roads aren't cared for? I, I mean, think about it. For, 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 the, for the non-Christian, think about the grace of God that is displayed in government. The care, the common good that we benefit from. And, and if you're a Christian here, have you rendered these things to Caesar? Have you been thankful? Have you been grateful? Have you prayed? If you're a Democrat, have you prayed for Paul Ryan ever? the head of the House now? Have you prayed for Mitch McConnell, head of the Senate? Have you ever? Republicans prayed for President Obama. They prayed for John Kerry as he negotiates these deals. Do we pray for them? I think we want to confess that we haven't walked rendering to Caesar, as Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, Christians have done the most for society. They're the ones that establish the orphanages and the universities and the hospitals. You know, the Christian influence has done the most for society. And when Hurricane Katrina came through, not one atheistic group gave a buck. Not one. It was the Christians that marshaled the most amount of leverage to help people. Christians are good for society. Christians make good citizens because we know that God has established that authority. And it's a service unto God. Why do we do it? Because we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is sovereign over all things. And we display our faith in God's sovereignty as we submit to a fallen government, a government of men and women that are fallen. We display for everybody that we know God reigns, that he sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. So let's be good citizens. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Look what he says next. He says, render to God the things that are God's. Now, this is to thud. This is, like, this is like an anvil hitting the ground. But you render to God the things that are God. So if the coin had an image which made it belong to Caesar, you and I as men and women have an image of God, which means we belong to God. So rendering to God the things that are God, you render everything to God. Your love, your loyalty, your obedience, your faith, your worship. We render everything to God, whether you're a, a mother, you're a businesswoman, you're a computer guy, you're an accountant. You're rendering to God is not on a Sunday morning. 
You're rendering to God is all the time. That's why Jesus said it last. It's to take the weight of everything. In Psalm 99, 1, he says that the Lord reigns and the nations tremble. All authority is brought up under God. Governments are under the authority of God. We are under the authority of God. Christ reigning. You know this quote from Abraham Kuyper in his inaugural address to the Free University at Amsterdam. He gave these words. He says, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. He owns it all. Now this is alarming in one hand. Have you rendered your lives to God? Now, whether you're, whether you're a Christian here or not Christian, the words apply to both. I mean, you can be a non-Christian here. You may not even believe in God. Let me tell you, that doesn't, that doesn't alleviate the reality that you need to render all things to God. You don't have to be a confessing Christian to recognize that God is the creator, sovereign over all, and everyone in this room. We're all called to render to God the things that are God, and the things that are God is your life the breath you're drawing, the way your mind's working, the way your body functions. It's all being sustained by Christ according to Colossians chapter 1 right now. Have you rendered all things to God? Have you lived for his honor? Have you been developing kingdoms? Have you been developing worlds that serve your purposes? Have you rendered all things to God? Now this is the glorious news of the gospel that none of us have. No one has rendered all things to God, but Christ has. He rendered even himself to God, giving his life. This is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus has come down to become like us, that he might render to God all things unto God, even to the very end of his life. So that now, by faith in Christ, we are accepted unto God because of his work. This is what makes us Christians, people. It's not coming to church. It's not affirming a set, set of propositions about Orthodox Christianity. It's us seeing Christ as the one who has rendered himself unto God, even unto death, so that through faith in Christ, we are now forgiven, accepted, adopted, drawn into his family, that we can call him now Abba Father. For the non-Christian, this is how you become a Christian, by considering Christ. Savior, Lord, the one who's delivered you unto God without sin and shame because he's borne it for you. So, so first, rendering to God the things that are God's means that we understand that we're accountable to God and we come in faith, trusting in the work of Christ. But secondly, and this is important, especially in our, in our growing nationalism in this country, um, that we also are to see ourselves as citizens of a new kingdom. You know, Donald Trump has the slogan, Make America Great Again. Now, I can understand how that resonates with a lot of people because we, many feel that the America they knew is kind of slipping through their grasp right now. May I remind you what Jesus said to Pilate? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. As, as Christians, our primary responsibility is the kingdom of God. We are exiles in this land. You know, the Christian has to develop a theology of exile. That we realize that we're pilgrims in this land. This doesn't mean that we don't care about our culture or our country. We do. 
In fact, we care more because we understand that right now our country, all countries, all times, all cultures have been under the power of the evil one. That making America great again, if by that you mean trying to establish a certain degree of Christian principles, it won't happen. The world, America, culture, is under the power of the evil one. That's what it is. That's what Scripture says. We see ourselves as exiles bringing a gospel to bear. You know, Obama had the slogan in various ways about change, hope for change, look for change, all this change. There is no change from the government. The government cannot cure society. It can restrain it. It can curb it. It cannot change it. Only the gospel can change in fact, Russell Moore, uh, I think a balanced cultural analyst, he says this, our end goal is not a Christian America, either of a made-up past or a hope for a future. Our end goal is the kingdom of Christ. See, God is no longer working through nations or ethnicities as he has. He's working through his son, gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to form a people of God, the kingdom of God, visualized now through the church. This is how God, remember, it's very clear how everything will be made right. It isn't get, it is not getting a certain party in government or administration. He says this in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel will go forth to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel will go forth. The gospel will be the key to bringing about a revolution of all things back to how God designs. So he's giving us a clear balance here between rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and rendering to God the things that are God. Now listen how it all ends up. Look in verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now this is both encouraging over the wisdom and the glory of Christ, but it's also sad. They went away. Did they change? Did they have faith? Did they see this new kingdom in Christ? We don't know. Maybe some did later. We know that many did not. They were shouting, crucify him in two days. How are you going to walk away from this sermon? Do you have that balance? Do you have that recognizing that apart from Christ, that we cannot be made new? And we will be just like these religious people? Do you have the balance between rendering to Caesar the things that... Can we as Christians be good citizens? And yet can we render to God the things that are God's all of our lives? So that's... Well, we're going to celebrate communion. So let me just pray for us that, um, that your thoughts and your mind might be turned to this, that you might be brought to a point of confession perhaps over where you have not been a good citizen or where you have put... God's kingdom, or your trust has been rooted in a political change rather than the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, I'll pray for us, and then um, I'll call the elders and servers forward. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Jesus. You've given him a kingdom, and upon his shoulders will your government now rest. You've called us as a people into this kingdom. Father, we ask for... um, We ask for grace where we have not walked in faithfulness to your word by rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
And Father, we all feel the weight of that idea that we have not rendered unto you the things that are yours, our very lives. So would you give us the grace to see this and to repent, to receive the joy that is ours, the forgiveness of Christ. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.